On today's episode of the Training Peaks Coachcast, your source for the latest information about the art, science, and business of coaching. The Ironman World Championship in Kona, Hawaii is right around the corner, and athletes are busy preparing around the world. This week, the Coachcast takes an inside look into possible weather conditions and how one coach is preparing his age group athletes for the challenge. Hey everybody, Dave here, and on this week's episode of the Training Peaks Coachcast, I first sit down with Ryan Cooper from Best Bike Split to talk about the Ironman World Championship happening in Kona pretty soon. Kona is unique in that it has some pretty brutal weather conditions, talking about crosswinds, heat, humidity, you name it. And so Ryan and I talked about what does a race typically look like, what was it like last year, and what can we look forward to this year. I then sit down with Simon Ward of thetriathloncoach.com. Simon has over 20 years of coaching experience. He's coached numerous athletes to Kona qualifiers, so tons of experience. And we talked to him about how does he prepare his athletes for this race, and then what are some of the things that you can do to prepare your athletes either to qualify for Kona or for any big event that they have coming up. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Training Peaks Coachcast. This is Dave Shell, the Director of Education, here with Ryan Cooper, the co-founder and chief scientist of Best Bike Split. Hello, Dave. And today we are talking about Kona. Um, it's coming up real quick. And Ryan, over the last several years, has run models, both showing what the weather is going to do and then showing athletes how to optimize their pacing strategy based on the weather conditions. So, Ryan... First off, before we get started, why don't you tell us what Kona typically looks like? Sure. So Kona is kind of this unique race course, and um, it's a great place for a championship course because it's so difficult compared to so many other courses. And part of it, what makes it so difficult is that weather conditions. And and what typically happens on the course, especially in the in the pro race, you have kind of these light, mild headwind conditions on the way out of town. You make a turn kind of around Waikoloa and you start heading up to the turnaround at Javi. And that's where you start getting these stronger headwinds. And what ends up happening is you have these kind of prevailing winds coming from the, the northeast across the island. And there's two, two mountain ranges. So you have two mountains. And so on one side, the wind gets funneled through that, those two, in between those two mountains. And on the other side, up at Javi, you have the direct headwind, and then you have the wind starting to wrap around the top of the island. And so it's pretty interesting as you, as you turn and, and start to make that climb, a, kind of a long, sustained, sustained climb up to Javi and the turnaround, you have this headwind. When you turn around and you expect to get this nice tailwind all the way back, you get a slight tailwind until you make another turn and kind of start heading back into town. And that's where you get hit with those kind of famous crosswinds and the reason you can't uh, use a disc at, at Kona. So you have these unique weather conditions and that, and they change throughout the course. So you have this headwind cross headwind slight tail coming off the big climb, but then it's back to cross. And then you get that wraparound wind um, that, that turns more into a headwind coming back into town again. So you never really get a good sustained tailwind to take advantage of. And so I have to imagine that kind of wreaks havoc on your model. Originally, when we created Best Bike Split, we started using a weather service called Dark, Dark Sky. And we thought, okay, well, we'll pull the wind data about halfway. So we'll kind of, you can pick a time and pull 
one point of weather data. And Kona was where we really realized that that wasn't going to be possible. So we, we changed the way we did our weather service. So where it now picks up multiple points, forecasted points of weather along the course for the times that we think you're going to be there. So if you run the model at Kona for the pros and pull that weather data, that'll look different than if you run a model for the age groupers. So if you, the pros may get out of the water around 7, 7.30 a.m., whereas some age groupers are going to be getting out around 9 or 9.30 a.m., the weather is going to be completely different between those two groups. Um, and that's especially true on the way back into town where typically you have a growing headwind throughout the day. So age groupers experience almost you know, much worse wind conditions than a lot of the pros do. And so you've been to Kona multiple times now, um, I think the last three or four years. How was last year different than most years? So yeah, that last year was this, um, and, and they had talked about it, and I'd actually talked to a couple of pro riders about it beforehand, uh, or pro athletes about it beforehand. And there was this idea that you can, you know, if you ride hard enough, and typically you don't, you don't think about that. You get out of the the water, and you kind of get into a rhythm, and you go. But if you can ride hard enough and get to the turnaround and and make the turnaround in time, you can do what he called uh, beating the winds. So if you can beat the wind, and that was kind of a Norman Statler. Uh, uh, when he broke the record, that was kind of one of his hallmark things as well, is that you get there and you beat the weather back into town. Well, last year you had three really strong cyclists, and Cameron Wharf, a former professional cyclist, used to ride for Cannondale. You have Lionel Sanders, who always is pushing you know, 310 watts. Um, and then, obviously, Sebastian Keenley, who's you know always at the front of the, the bike course. You had those three athletes kind of working in conjunction on the way out, so they had a little bit of a deficit out of the water. They had already made that up by the turnaround point. And then they kept pushing kind of with this thought in mind, but it never, that wind never came back. So the, the wind conditions that are typically strong cross and then a growing headwind on the way back into town never materialized. So you had these times, um, all three of them broke Statler's record from 2006. So, uh, and not just broke it, but shattered it by four minutes or so. So you had, um, really pristine conditions it was a little overcast not no wind at all and and not the normal searing heat kind of coming in so um, all those contributed to having these really fast bike splits Um, but across the board everybody had a faster split so Patrick Lange who ended up winning uh, came in I believe he had a penalty last year so it's kind of apples and oranges but he came in maybe five or six I think five minutes faster uh, you know, similar kind of effort level. So um, across the board, you had much faster times and I wouldn't expect that to happen, you know, year after year. And I, I know that we're still a little ways out from Kona at this point, but so far as you start to look and kind of predict the model, um, is it looking like a typical year or is there anything you're seeing that might change it up a bit? So I've been watching the weather the last few days just to kind of see what it looks like. And right now it looks typical in terms of every day. It kind of looks about the same, um, you know, to some varying degrees. And even last year, had they done the race on Sunday as opposed to Saturday, it would have been completely different story. So Sunday the winds picked back up and it was way stronger than normal. So even that whole next week, actually, if you, we, my wife and I stayed at Waikoloa Beach, which um, is on the on the bike course and so we were there the week after the race and the nickname the locals nickname for that is Waikabloa 
because it just blows nonstop. And it's funny if you look at the palm trees. So if you ride through there um, and you look at the palm trees, they're all growing at an angle because the wind is just so constant and so strong there as it gets funneled through those two kind of mountain passes. So had it been run the next day, I think we probably would have had a different story and maybe a different podium as well. So, so far it's looking at least from the data that I've looked at for the last week, um, it's looking more typical, but just like last year, anything can happen and can have that one abnormal day um, that just sets up perfectly for kind of record breaking. On the flip side, a lot of the strong cyclists would prefer to have worse wind. So if you kind of think about it, um, you know, they're not going to be as impacted from that as the weaker cyclists. So you see these kind of long trains happening, especially on the way out you know, that stuff, if you have a really strong crosswind, that'll start to get broken up. And so you won't have as many people sitting in and kind of, uh, you know, getting a little bit of an advantage off of the riders in front of them. You have that stronger wind and the strong cyclists like a Starkey or like a Cameron Wharf or Lionel Sanders and Keenley, they may not break the record, but they may put more time into the people that are the stronger runners behind them. Now, obviously, it sounds like wind is a huge consideration when going to Kona. But what are some of the other factors that come into play? Um, well, heat is, is always a big one. You know, you have the, it's not just pure heat. So being in, I'm in Texas, and so we're used to this kind of 100 degree heat. And, you know, a lot of people out west and stuff are used to this really high temperature. And even in Colorado, you get those hot days, but you don't have the humidity. So, you know, it may only be 80 degrees in Kona, but you have 90% humidity or 80% humidity. So you just have that kind of constant, you know, relative temperature that's sucking, you know, kind of the, the energy out of you. So um, you have that across the bike. Um, and if they're, you know, the wind maybe will help cool you off a little bit, but you know, if it's a hot wind, then it, it just feels kind of, you know, <laughs> and then it's hot and you have a hot wind. And so then the, also there's, quite a bit more climbing than people realize. So you think about Kona and you're like, Oh, it's on an Island. You're riding along the coast. It's going to be fairly flat, but I think there's almost, there may be more than 5,000 feet, I think, or, you know, around there climbing. So you've got a few ups and downs on the way out and then you have the big, big climb up of E. So um, there's definitely some, some challenges other than just the wind that you have to face. So as you can see, Kona does present its own set of unique challenges. For updates on what we expect this year, be sure to check back into the Training Peaks blog and to check in during the World Championship Race Week where Ryan and I will be on the island and bringing you updates and other interviews from other coaches. Next, we talk to Simon Ward from thetriathloncoach.com. As many of you know, Ironman World Championships are just around the corner. For those of you that may not be familiar with the race, it is essentially the Super Bowl of triathlons. Nearly anyone who has ever competed at the Iron Distance um, event has aspired to one day make it to Kona, either by qualifying through the lottery or by earning a legacy spot. However, the road to Kona is an extremely difficult one, and if and when you do actually make it, you'll be rewarded with an environmentally grueling race. Definitely not for the faint of heart. Simon has prepared many age group athletes for the World Championship over the years, and we wanted to find out more about his secrets to success and the specifics on how he prepares his athletes for the unique challenge of Kona. Simon, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, no problem, Dave. Pleasure to be here. So before we get into it, could you just tell us a little bit more about yourself in your own words? 
Yes, well, I uh, as you said, I'm from Leeds in Yorkshire. It's now the uh, we we like to think of it as the best triathlon training environment in the world, home of the Brownleys and the Leeds High Performance Centre. So we have uh, uh, Vicky Holland who's working here. She's the current WTS World Champion. Um, Alistair Brownley lives locally and uh, it's double gold medalist at the Olympics. Andy's brother Jonathan, and we've had Non Stanford. And uh, who else? Sam Dickinson, under 23 silver. So Leeds and Yorkshire is a fantastic environment. We've got the World Cycling Championships coming here next year. So it's great to be based in this part of the world. Um, but, but I have coaches uh, and athletes all over the world, actually. So uh, I get a wide variety of people to work with. I've been coaching as a triathlon coach for, let's see, 23 years now. I started in 1995. Before that, I was working as a personal trainer. And and now I call myself a life coach to triathletes. And I guess that the, the one common denominator between each of those bits of work that I've done is that you are actually dealing with a human being and then finding them a training program which allows them to reach their goals and their potential. So, And that's the most important thing, I think, for me now as a coach is to understand, and for other coaches, that First and foremost, you're dealing with human beings and they have lives and baggage and obstacles and and, and things to overcome. And, and our job as coaches is to help them overcome those, provide solutions and get the best out of themselves. So so actually, the fact that I've also worked in professional sport as a sports conditioner and a, and a wide number of sports doesn't really matter because ultimately, again, you're dealing with people and you're dealing with a sport. And if you put the two together, you can use some basic principles to come up with a training plan that helps them get the, get the results and achieve their goals. And so how many athletes do you, since we are talking about Kona today in the World Championship, how many athletes do you have racing there this year? Five this year, five last year. Um, most years I've had two or three, so going back maybe 15 or 16 years. So um, some of those have been racing at the peak of their age group. Some of them are relative novices to Ironman. Some of them, most of them have qualified. But more recently, some of them have been getting legacy spots. Another valid way, as you mentioned at the beginning, to get to Kona. But yeah, five this year two legacy, uh, one who got a golden ticket for the 40th anniversary, and two, who, and two who've qualified. What exactly is a legacy spot? How do you earn one of those? Well, the legacy program was introduced three or four years ago by Andrew Messick in response to the number of athletes who said that they loyally competed at Ironman races year after year, but felt that they just weren't genetically gifted or um, you know didn't choose the right parents, or just because of the fact that they were running a huge multi-million dollar company and didn't have 20 hours a week to dedicate to training they they perhaps were never going to get to achieve their dream and their goal of, of racing you know on the queen k highway and so recognizing that some of these people were hugely important to iron man as, as as a customer base um i think iron man decided to do something about it i think it's really an extension of the uh um, the lottery program that valerie silk first put into place and then was was obviously was outlawed so they've got this legacy program now you have to do at least 12 wtc iron distance events so no 70.3s all 140.6 all ironman branded events around the world and once you've done your 12 you can apply to be on the legacy program and right now i would say that it seems that most people are having to wait for at least um, miss the miss the next one out and then apply the year later. So if you've done your if you've just done your twelfth, you could apply probably in October November this year. You might not get in for twenty nineteen, but you probably get in for twenty twenty. Although, I guess that list is growing every year. Yeah, and I would definitely say you've earned your spot if you've done twelve Ironmans, if you've completed twelve Ironmans or or um, that distance. 
And so you personally, how many Ironmans have you completed? I think I've done 14 WTC events now, including Kona last year, which which I managed to get to on the strength of my legacy. Um, And then I've done four or five non-WTC iron distance events around the world. So 19 all told over over 23 years. And was last year your first year racing Kona? Yeah, and I should imagine it'll be my last. I I just don't think that I have. (laughs) I don't think that I have what it takes to get to Kona athletically. Uh, I would have to make an awful lot of sacrifices to do the training and the preparatory work needed to even get anywhere close to a slot there. And even then, I'd have to have a great day and other people to have a bad day. And and at 54, I'm not sure if I want to do that again. I'm having too much fun doing other stuff now. Um, I I love Ironman and I love going to Kona and I'll be be there this year. But... um, it's much more fun being there as a spectator, I think, having having done it last year. So you had mentioned that you're you look at yourself as kind of a life coach for people who do triathlon and that you need to coach the athlete in front of you. Yeah. And so as a coach, like let's say for, for myself personally, I've never been to Kona. Do you think you need that personal experience of having raced that event in order to effectively coach an athlete for the event? Um I don't think it's I don't think it's necessary to have raced the event. I, I've been going out to Kona since two thousand and two because I was working for CompuTrainer, and so I would be there for at least ten days. I would see what was going on. I've I've swum the course. I've ridden most of the course, although until last year I'd never ridden it in one go. I've run the course, but you know, um, in in various bits, I, I, and I've been on the island, uh, understanding the conditions and the weather and the you know, the humidity and everything else that goes and the excitement that goes with it. So so when I went last year to do it myself, I knew exactly what was going to happen and what I was letting myself in for. And I, and I do have that experience. I think without understanding the specifics of Kona, it would be difficult to, to coach somebody to the best of their ability and yours as a coach. You know, if you'd never been there, perhaps you wouldn't understand just how debilitating that humidity and, and heat is in the first few days. Um, you You might not know what the energy lab is like at 3 p.m. on a on a hot Saturday afternoon and how, how much of a struggle it can be getting into there and out of there. You might not know how strong those winds are um, coming down from Harvey if you're one of the later, um, you know, the later athletes in the older age groups. So no, knowing those sorts of things, um, I think, is important. And, and so knowing that and taking that into account, are there any things, anything that you do specifically to prepare your athlete? So you live in England, and typically it's probably not getting to 90 degrees Fahrenheit with the extreme humidity. So how might you prepare an athlete that doesn't live in that type of climate to prepare them for the race? Yeah, well, it's certainly not. I mean, if you were leaving this week, you'd have been experiencing conditions down to about 10 or 12 degrees centigrade and uh, quite cool at nights and definitely very low humidity. So um, the options we have are some some people have access to heat chambers at universities to train in. So in, in Leeds, we have that. And I used that myself last year. In the absence of those, you can use a sauna protocol um, for a number of days before you come out to Hawaii. In the absence of that, you can turn the heating up, put the shower on hot, um, wear two layers of clothing and then get your turbo trainer in your bathroom and work out there. Um, and And I do know that some people go to Lanzarote and uh, and train there for a week or two before going to Kona. Um, they're the ones with time and money on their side. Right. So those other options that I mentioned are probably the, the most popular. And 
certainly the sauna and the the bathroom with a with a hot shower or a kettle boiling away um whilst less scientific are probably the best you've got and then right and then the next the next thing i would say is that we advise people to make sure they get to kona 10 at least 10 days before the event itself so if they've started their acclimatization in a in a self-sufficient manner at home they can continue that by getting to getting to the island early that sh- they should be just about right for race day then with that sauna protocol or the um turning on the shower in the bathroom how would you what would that protocol look like for an athlete well the sauna protocol there there is some research behind it and some some uh, published papers you 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 go and train the one that we use anyway you go and train for about an hour um running or cycling it doesn't have to be hard but you you don't drink anything during that that time so you're putting your body under a bit of strain heat uh, and letting your core temperature rise and then you go straight into the sauna on finishing and you're able to drink adlibitum once you get into the sauna and you start off with three times 10 minutes um with with a five or 10 minute break between each where you can get a cold shower and just go and dry off or just just escape the heat and then you go back in uh, and then over probably every 48 hours you'd go back in there and you build up until you until you're able to do 30 minutes non-stop it's not perfect preparation but it's certainly better than being in temperate climate that we have in the uk now and and it starts off the adaptation process that you can continue by getting to Kona a bit earlier. And now for those athletes, let's say they've they've started with the sauna protocol, or they've yeah. been turning on the shower in the bathroom. Yeah. Um, now they're you're telling them to get to Kona a week early. Now, yeah. if this is your first time racing, I'm sure it's full of excitement. There's lots of things to see. There's underwear runs. There's the expo things like that. So what are you telling the athlete now? They've got a week there. How do you keep them from kind of blowing their race in the week leading up to that? So the first thing we do is have a have a long, frank conversation about what really they want to get out of being on the island. So there will be some people who, for them, the qualification was the big effort, and they're probably unlikely to reach that level of fitness going again going back there, having rested and then and then sort of regrouped. And and for them, it may just be to enjoy the experience, have a solid event. But, but take everything in on the basis that they may not go back and compete there. For others um, who've been, who might have been there before, it's perhaps an opportunity to set a personal best um, or maybe even get onto the podium. And there may be those that are going for the first time. I have one, one guy that I'm working with this year who is going for the first time in the future. He probably could get onto the podium if we can work on his swimming. And so this is a learning experience for him. So, so the first thing is depends on your goal set. If if you want to see everything and enjoy the event, then perhaps you know you can be a bit more relaxed about getting involved with stuff. If you're really going for a performance, you've got to decide what's important to you, what things you need to do while you're there, and and then shut yourself away really from the rest of the excitement, which is difficult. There's an awful lot going on. So we have a look at the timetable, which is published in advance. That all the schedule of events is there. Athletes need to register. From I think from the Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday, they need to go to the briefing on the Thursday night. They might want to go to the pasta party. They might want to go to the, the athlete parade on the Tuesday. And they might want to go to the underpants run, which isn't that onerous, really. It's a kilometre at an easy pace. You know, or a, it's, it's barely a walk for some people. So it's not it's not that onerous. And it's at 7 a.m. And, and then they've got to go and rack on Friday afternoon and get ready for the race. But but there's the expo. There's the Hoala swim on the Saturday, you know, on the course. So, there is a lot of areas where they could drop energy and, and they just need to be mindful of that and, and how it might affect them on race day. So we, we usually set out a schedule in advance and then have them 
be be sensible in between. But of course, yeah, there's there's all, there's an awful lot of stuff to do on 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 the island as well outside of the Iron Man. So um, people like to go to the beach and go and watch the dolphins and do the manta ray dive. It's really difficult to keep a lid on everything you do. Absolutely, you got to find those turtles. Of course, yeah. Well, you can, but if you you know you can. You can go and swim with the dolphins in the bay if you're lucky and if you get up at the right time. And, you know, you could perhaps go down to the Captain Cook Memorial and swim across across the bay there and see the, the, the spinner dolphins. Um, so you, you can you can cycle on a bit of the course and go out to Hapuna Beach or go from Hapuna Beach up to Harvey and leave your family at the beach, you know, and meet them there later. So there's, there's ways you can work it in. Um, you just got to make sure that you're not doing too much. I think you make a great point, too, is that, Maybe this, maybe an athlete's been trying for a long time, or let's take a few of these legacy spot athletes that they're not looking for a podium spot. This is really about the experience of the race. And so might the advice be a little bit different for them where they're just trying to take everything in and, and have an experience from it versus somebody that's hunting for a podium spot? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I you know, before I went out last year, I, I you know, even having been there many times, I, I put a post on Facebook and asked people what were the what were their big lessons from the time when they did it. And I must have got a hundred posts back from various people. There were several that stood out, and and um, most people said, "Take as much of it in as you can," you know, because you might never go back. One guy said, "I pushed myself so hard on the first time I went there, I can hardly remember any of it." And if that was the only time I'd ever managed to go, I'd be really sad that that I couldn't remember some of the things on race day. I. I I actually raced last year and within myself and I can remember every single bit about that day and I'm glad that I'm glad that I can you know and I'm not at all bothered about the time that I crossed the line in in fact for several days I didn't even know until somebody told me and it was more about the time I had rather than the time I did I I know that that most triathletes that are probably going to be listening to this are are probably sitting back and horrified that I wasn't bothered about the time but 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 this is an experience for most people and it really isn't about the time you do, and if you're ten minutes slower than normal, that's that's not a failure. You got to Kona, you were at the big party, and and that's what mad. You know, it's the journey, the journey you had to get there. And my journey was nearly thirty years long, so I sort of liken it to uh, going to a party and getting so drunk you can't remember anything about it. Um, right, and, and that and that would be an awful shame, wouldn't it, if you went to a great party? Absolutely. Now, for some of your qualifiers or, or the qualifiers that you've seen. Um, over the years, let's say there's an athlete that that's right on the, you know, knocking on the door for that qualification and they miss it by a minute or something like that. How how do you address that with those athletes? Well, we have to we have to have a really solid debrief after the race and look at the reasons why they may not have qualified. If we knew what their performance level needed to be, in order to qualify based on previous data, you know, averaged over five years perhaps for a particular race, and they hit that and they did everything within their power and they were able to look back at the training period and say there was nothing else I could have done and on the day I did my best and there were other athletes that just went better than me. You know, disappointment can be replaced with satisfaction that you did what you had to, but if, if your lifelong goal is to get to Kona, it's not a gimme. You know, nobody sort of, it's not like one of those one foot putts you have on the green where somebody says, yeah, I'll give you that one. That that, that doesn't happen in Kona. Um, you've got to work for it. And um, success comes through resilience and persistence and patience and a bit of luck. And I do know athletes that I've worked with who have been in that position of narrowly missing out and who've regrouped and been able to do everything again. 
exactly the same for another 12 months. And they did get the slot the year after. It was worth it in the end, but at the time, you know, thinking you've got to go through that whole thing again for another 12 months is hard. But then if you, you could ask them the question, OK, how old will you be next year? And if they said, well, I'll be 51. So will you still be 51 if you do all this work again like this? Yes. And if you don't do the work again, will you still be 51? Yes. So whether you, whether you do the work or you don't do the work, you're still going to be the same age and you're still going to have the same goal. So for most of them, then there's no choice in the matter. They just take a big deep breath in and repeat the process and hope that there's a bit of luck on their side. I imagine that it could be, I guess, detrimental if an, if an athlete is so focused on that outcome of qualifying for Kona, where a lot of those things may not be in their control. And so mm. how do you address that with an athlete as they are doing their big qualifying race? You know, maybe don't focus on the outcome, just focus on the process along the way. Or, or how are you addressing that? Absolutely. I think they need to be mindful of the outcome but focus on the little things that are going to help them get that outcome. You know, if it happens, if you do the right things and it happens, then it will happen. So setting a PB in the swim isn't necessarily going to get you a qualification slot, but what you have to do is put yourself in the right place in the swim, swim to your potential, get out of the water in the right place, having not given up too much time to your other competitors, and then get on the bike and, and be, be mindful of those things that we agreed you were going to do. Keep the pace. Don't get too excited at the beginning. Ride your race. Get your hydration and nutrition in at the right times. Hold back a little bit on the climbs. Get off the bike feeling like you could have gone a little bit harder. Trust your training and trust your running. And then get to work on the run and hold back for the first few K. Don't get excited. Do your nutrition. Do all those little things. And slowly... You know, if things are happening for you, you will be in the right place. And at some point, you are going to have to just take a big deep breath again and suck up a little bit of discomfort if you want that spot. But as I said earlier, it's not a gimme. You know, you're going to have to work for it and you are going to have to most of the time go to some deep, dark places in order to get that. But if it means that much to you, then hopefully you've already committed to be able to do that. And, and, that's, and that's what it comes down to. You have to be in the right place, in the right ballpark. I know guys who've been to one race and missed out by two minutes and three months later they've been to a race put in the same performance and they've made it by two minutes but each time they were in and around the right area and then you know just a, a few cards fell their way and it was their day is there any common theme that you see amongst those qualifiers as far as um, how they approach their training or are they stronger in one discipline other than the other or do you see anything along those lines most of them are pretty evenly um, balanced across the three sports. They're not weak swimmers. They may not be uber swimmers, but they're certainly not weak swimmers. So they're not, they're not giving up any time there. They're pretty good bikers, but they're not necessarily the best bikers. Most of them are quite strong runners and are able to, to pace themselves well. So they're not slowing down in the second half of the race, which is important. They have emotional intelligence, so they're able to make decisions about what to do during the race that are positive so they don't get carried away and they don't they don't let their emotions get to the head and sort of lose it in preparation they there's a spread in terms of the number of hours that, that people are able to achieve each week but what's common amongst all of them is that they were they were very consistent in the training they didn't get injured very much over a two or three year spell leading up to their their successful qualification race they did all the small things on a daily basis so they they got the sleep in they attended to their nutrition, so it was a part of their. They considered it to be a part of their training. 
to get their nutrition right and make sure that the right food was available before and after training sessions. They contacted me on a regular basis, gave me honest, open, frank feedback about the way training sessions were going, about the way they were feeling, about how they were responding to it, whether they felt that it was too much, too little. They, can, they contacted me at the agreed time on a regular basis. And, and you can tell by looking at training peaks, which, which we all use, that, that those guys who were on it were filling in the feedback and getting it done on time every week. The ones who are losing motivation, you can see red blocks appearing, not because they haven't done the training, but because they're just they're just not filling it in because they don't consider it to be important because they've just gone off off target or off off course a little bit mentally. So you know it's it's the simple things they were doing regularly, not not the big weeks of training, not the superhuman efforts every now and again, just doing the right thing every week, not getting injured and putting putting all the bricks into the wall. I think that's such an important point, and I think it's um definitely something to take away is that. Like you said, sometimes it's not the sexy things or oftentimes it's not the sexy things that they're doing. It's just being consistent and doing it well, leaving that feedback, which is so important with the coach, just so that you do continue that conversation. Yeah, I think I think the thing there as well is, Dave, that um, everybody likes to see numbers. They like to look at the Garmin or the Sunto and uh, the, you know, their GPS data and see how fast they went, see how many miles they covered, see how much power they put out, see what their fastest kilometer was on the run. But what's really important to a coach is what was actually happening to them as they were doing that. You you and I can look at some data for a run and it, it, it might say that they've run 10K in 45 minutes. And then next week they do the same run over the same course and it's 10K in 45 minutes. So on the face of it, it looks like it was the same session. But when you when you dig deep and you get some comments or the feel good factors and you see that this on this particular run, they struggled, their breathing was all over the place, they couldn't keep their pace, they felt clumsy and awkward, they, they were tired afterwards, they felt sick. And on the next run, it was a breeze. And then, uh, you know, that they felt really relaxed and comfortable. It was easy to keep the pace. In fact, they had to keep slowing themselves down. And then you look, and then looking at those comments, you look a bit deeper and find that when the things weren't feeling so good, they hadn't slept very well, their stress levels were high. The heart rate variability was poor. And on the day when they had a good run, those things were reversed and everything was looking good. So the subjective feedback that athletes are able to give coaches is, is critical. And that's what all of these athletes were good at as well, is giving you the giving you the information behind the numbers. First off, I want to say thank you for the, taking the time to talk with us today. Definitely appreciate it. Will you be in Kona this year? Yes, I will. Going out on Monday, so uh, Monday the 8th. So I'll be there a few days before the race. Fantastic. Um, hopefully I'll see you out there. Training Peaks is having a user party Wednesday at Daylight Mine, so hopefully we'll see you there. Thanks again for your time, Simon. Before I let you go, um, do you have any kind of words of advice or recommended reading for coaches that could help them um, get their own athletes to Kona? Oh, recommended reading. I've got a whole bookshelf full of recommended reading here, and each one of them's each one of them's got a different lesson. I'm looking at one now actually called The One Thing, and you know that to me that's a really good lesson you you talked a bit further back in the podcast about the athletes looking at the shiny new thing and getting distracted and um, it's easy to do that it's easy to hear read hear look on social media about what everybody else is doing and think that you know I should be doing this but if you have this idea about what what the one thing is you want and what's the one thing you're going to do today and what's the one thing you're going to do this week to take you closer to getting to Kona both as a coach and an athlete I, I think that that would be a a really good um, 
a really good action to take every day is, is get up in the morning, do a little journal and write down what's the one thing that I'm going to do today that will take me closer to that goal. And what's the one thing that I can do today as a coach that will help my athletes get closer to that goal. And if you're both in harmony on that one, I think that'll be a lead to a great relationship and success in the long term. Fantastic. That's great advice. Thank you, Simon. And we'll, um, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Okay, perfect. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, thanks. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed our talk with Simon Ward. To find out where to follow Simon and a list of the resources mentioned in this episode, check out the Training Peaks blog. If you are enjoying the Training Peaks Coachcast, please be sure to subscribe and share. And let us know what else you'd like to learn about by leaving reviews or tweeting to us at, at @trainingpeaks. Until next time.